Hey, this is Alex Shaw, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. I tell you that's a pity, cause I can't get enough. Eating disorders have a reputation for wrecking emotional havoc in a family and trigger strong emotional reactions by loved ones and therapists who can end up in a tug of war to make the disturbing symptoms stop. But eating disorder specialist Dana Heron says love and compassion are key ingredients to successful treatment. When I went to look for advice on loving someone with an eating disorder that included partners, there was literally nothing. There are some really amazing books out there for parents, but if you treat your partner like you would treat a child, that's not going to be a good recipe for a healthy marriage. Dana is the author of Loving Someone with an Eating Disorder, Understanding, Supporting, and Connecting with Your Partner. In this episode of The Soul of Life, I speak with Dana about the most common types of disordered eating, and we separate eating disorder facts from fiction. My partner said that I look really healthy today, and that sounds like a really good thing to say, but oh, actually, that's going to trigger the eating disorder really badly. We review some of the most common eating disorders, like binging. Binge eating is eating a lot of food in a very short period of time, basically. And typically, a person is doing it for reasons of um, numbing feelings or kind of like a small-scale psychic rebellion. Restrictive eating. We get feel-good chemicals from eating because our bodies want us to eat, right? Um, There's also, for some people, depending on your genetics, um, you can get feel-good chemicals from not eating. And we talk about bulimia, anorexia, and exercise addiction, and what may be at the root of these symptoms. There are a whole lot of things that you might not get an eating disorder's diagnosis for, but that are nevertheless really problematic. In our society, we normalize a very disordered approach to food and body. Um, we encourage pe- people to treat their bodies like a continuous self-improvement project. What advice does Dana give to family members of someone struggling with disordered eating? If you can find the parts of you that feel vulnerable, the parts that wishes they could hide. I have a client who says, my cringeworthy self. If you can find that part of yourself, then you can meet your partner there. Dana explains how disordered eating affects sex, often shutting down a fully in-the-moment sensory experience in place of performative detachment. People generally, and people with eating disorders especially, have a tendency to view uh, the body from the outside in as opposed to experiencing it from the inside out. And Dana updates us on the wildly inaccurate undercalculation of the prevalence of disordered eating among boys and men, which has historically been thought of as one in 10 males. There has been newer research that um, says, you know, we're looking to actually close to about half, like maybe 40, 45%. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is season two, episode eight, Loving Someone with an Eating Disorder there is a strong and scary possibility that body positivity can be or maybe is being co-opted and used for the purposes um, that are actually very contrary to the body positive movement.
I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Dana Heron is the founder of Monarch Wellness and Psychotherapy in Washington, D.C. that focuses on mind-body issues such as anxiety, insomnia, trauma, and disordered eating. She's an associate clinical faculty at George Washington University's professional psychology program, and Dr. Heron provides supervision to doctoral students lecturing widely in area universities. Her 2019 book is called Loving Someone with an Eating Disorder, Understanding, Supporting, and Connecting with Your Partner. Here's one review from Carolyn Costin, author of The Eating Disorder Sourcebook and Your Dieting Daughter. The literature has long been deficient in books for loved ones who not only need the facts, but also need specific coping skills to manage their feelings, mealtimes, communication, and even intimacy. Heron covers a range of topics from self-care to redirecting negative patterns, setting boundaries, and reestablishing a sexual relationship, treating readers as personal clients, helping them support themselves and their loved ones through a trying time. It's a great honor to have you with me here. Dana, how are you today? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm excited to speak. We're, we were just talking about being neighbors in DuPont Circle in downtown DC with our offices. It's a very small little world. Yeah. Small world. Whenever we get back to those offices, I, I'm hopeful soon. You know, I know a lot of us are still seeing people remotely. Um, in my practice, and it's probably going to continue for some time. But uh, I imagine so. I imagine yeah. so. But someday we'll get coffee. Someday we'll be able to see, take a walk or get get a coffee downtown. And it's a great neighborhood. Um, I'm excited to to meet you because this book is, I think, really need, needed. As I was speaking for um, in the in the review, it's something that um, we, there's a lot of literature on eating disorders. And maybe there's, uh, I don't want to say there's too much, but there's a lot of choices. It can be hard to narrow down when you're looking on that subject, which, where do mm-hmm. I start? Where do I refer people to? So what's nice is that you're um, speaking to the spouse and the supportive relationship and how that affects the symptoms of a disordered eating. Uh, tell me what made you interested in writing Loving Someone with an Eating Disorder? Well, it's actually uh, pretty much what you just described. There there was nothing. Um I was getting a lot of calls about, you know, my husband, my wife, my partner, my spouse is struggling and what should I do? You know, and I, I often tell people that I'm a frustrated librarian at heart. Like I like to have something to to give. Oh, you know, try this, try that, read this. It might help. And when I went to look for um, for advice on loving someone with an eating disorder that included partners, there was literally nothing. There are some really amazing books out there for parents. But if you treat your partner like you would treat a child, that's not going to be a good recipe for a healthy marriage. So, um, so I, you know, I sort of tucked that idea back in the back of my brain and um, time went by and I ended up in a conversation with an acquisitions editor about some other topic and I brought it up and it sort of just, um, you know, seemed like it was a good time for it and it took life. So, yeah. 
Um, what was it like writing the book and pulling this material together? I mean, you've been practicing for a while, I suppose, and some of this must come from your years of experience. Uh, it was really helpful for me to be able to think about all of the couples I've worked with over the years and all of the things that, um, you know, I see so many individual clients where they tell me, oh, you know, my, uh, my partner said that I look really healthy today. And that sounds like a really good thing to say, but oh, actually that's going to trigger the eating disorder really badly. Mm. You're going to translate the word healthy into the word fat and become afraid of healthiness. Um, and I, I've wished I could be a, like a sort of like whisper in the ear of the support people for a lot of the people that I'm working with so frequently that it, it feels like this lets me do that, you know? So it's kind of exciting to be like, um, I'm going to be in your living room. And, right. Right. And you, and you write with that very kind of engaging kind of style of kind of coming alongside the reader. And this is, I want to say, you know, it can sound like it's a, it's a tough topic to talk about. There are, you know, it is, it is very, very challenging. It's, it's very, uh, you know, traumatizing often for the people that experience it and, and can be devastating. But, you know, your book and the many that are out there and from a treatment perspective is so hopeful. I think when people are able to engage in treatment, there's so much that can be done. Little things can go a long way. Absolutely. The smallest little changes make a huge difference. Um, I'm working with somebody right now who, uh, you know, just uh, what did she do? She put a post-it on her mirror that says, you know, you are not, you are not only what you look like, right? Or something along those lines, some positive, healthy message. And, uh, you know, it took her two seconds to do, but it reminds her every time she's looking at herself to like, okay, let me look into my own eyes Mm-hmm. And let me see myself as a person, not an object. Right. And uh, I think it's made a, a really big difference. And I'm hoping the book can be one of those little things that like puts a puts a drop in the bucket. And, you know, as long as the water level's going up, you're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much opportunity for support. And, and your book is evidence of that. Let's let's talk about um, kind of to put a frame around this discussion. What what are eating disorders? What does disordered eating look like? And there's because there's so many. And you know, if we can choose a, a few to focus on, and, and maybe talk about some common ma- uh, myths that you like to correct when you teach oh, on this subject. Yes, there's okay. There's a lot there, so don't let me go off on a tangent because I will. Um, I typically don't actually think much in terms of eating disorder diagnoses. The reason for that is that you see when you work with somebody for a while, you can see that diagnoses often flip or get added to and adjusted throughout the span of what you're working with. They're very often all um, very different on the surface level, but really tied together to certain ways of thinking and feeling about yourself. So in terms of thinking about um, uh, eating disordered behaviors, the most common thing that we're having diagnosed right now is called binge eating disorder. So rather than thinking about binge eating disorder, I think about people who binge eat because um, it, it includes more people and it's probably more realistic. So um, binge eating is eating a lot of food in a very short period of time, basically. And typically a person is doing it for reasons of um, if numbing feelings or kind of like a small scale psychic rebellion, or um, maybe they just feel out of control around the food. So um, I think about binge eating as one um, yeah, and, one and of the behaviors. Eating food is pleasurable, right? I mean, so that is, I mean, just to get fundamental here, like the, the pleasure that is released from eating food and especially sugar is a, I forget what it's called, super 
mm. super duper dopamine releaser. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a super stimulus. It's oh, a super uh-huh. stimulus. I've heard that yeah. term described as, you know, um, refined sugars being a super stimulus for the brain as it relates to releasing. It can be, chemicals. yeah. We get we can get um, we get feel good chemicals from eating because our bodies want us to eat, right? Um, there's also for some people, depending on your genetics, um, you can get feel good chemicals from not eating. Um, and then we might see something like typically people would use the diagnostic label anorexia. I would think about restriction, right? So this is just basically having trouble eating enough, mm-hmm. um, uh, being afraid of fat and um, having a, like a sort of relentless drive for thinness. It's like a food phobia and a, and a, and a fat phobia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great way to put it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it can be more complicated than that. You also see people who purge, which is to try to get rid of calories in one way or another. Um, the the thing that many people think of for purging is bulimia, where people try to get rid of food by vomiting, even though it's not an effective method of weight control. Um, which I always try to say because I don't, you know, um, I don't want to give anyone a, any other impression of it. Yeah. Um, but purging can also mean exercising too much, um, exercising past the point of physical exhaustion or on top of injury. It can mean, uh, fasting or not eat, restricting, not eating for periods of time. Um, there's lots of different things that are called purging. And then there's a whole lot of things that, uh, you might not get, uh, uh, there are a whole lot of things that you might not get an eating disorders diagnosis for, but that are nevertheless really problematic. In our society, we normalize a very disordered approach to food and body. Um, we encourage pe- people to treat their bodies like a continuous self-improvement project. And um, the problem with that is that uh, if you think about sort of like the Cartesian split, right? The idea that there's your body and then there's your mind and they're separate. And you really get into the roots of that and realize what a falsehood it is. Then you come to realize that when you're hating your body, you're in a fundamental way hating yourself, your capital S self. And whether or not you ever do any actual eating disordered behavior, going around hating yourself is so harmful. Um, so. It's tempting, right? Because it seems like that's because there's almost a logic to it. Well, you know, uh, like even with the COVID, like if we don't do everything we can to take these extra precautions, then we could be the one that gets hurt, yeah, and gets sick. Yeah. So wouldn't it? What's the harm in like like wearing a mask? You know, maybe in your house with no one there. Like, right? You can begin to see how the disorder, yeah, um, symptomology creeps right in. in. It's so subtle, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, oh, just eat half the muffin to never have a muffin. And a lot of people who end up with, um, with trouble around these areas have kind of black and white thinking patterns. We all, we We all all do on some (laughs) one thing or another, but like for them, it comes up around food, right? So instead of let me have, you know, uh, 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 let me have like a, a brownie and a salad, right? It, it turns into, you know, foods are in rigid categories. Often they're good foods or they're bad foods. And then the corollary is, depending on how you've eaten, you're honestly feel like a good person or a bad person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of conditionality of the self-love that I think is really the heart of mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the problem. And, and how do you begin to to 
form a relationship with someone? Because I think maybe I, I want to ask you the inside scoop as a therapist. Uh, obviously, you're writing this book f- to teach a spouse or a loved one to begin to form a relationship with someone in a way that is, um, well, not you're not teaching them to be therapists, but to be there, to be a presence in a way that can help shift the process of self-harm. Right, I so am so glad that? you're asking that. Um, the number one most important thing actually is to take care of yourself. You, um, yourself, not, not your, your act, partner. Yourself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot about, uh, you know, for myself, I think about times that I've been rude and nasty and unhelpful, you know, to various people in my life. And um, usually I've been tired or hungry or, you know, my... Uh, my place is a mess. I feel uncomfortable in my body. There's usually, it's usually in some way related to a failure to take care of myself. And when I'm, you know, my best self and I'm gracious and open and genuine, it's because I've had a solid eight to nine hours of sleep. My body's nourished, you know, like I've really taken care of myself. Um, So I actually, in the book, I put that as like the, the right after what's an eating disorder. It's like, how do I take care of myself? Um, it feels that fundamental to me. So the number one thing is taking care of yourself. I think a hundred percent after that, then trying to understand what's going on for your partner and deeply get where they're coming from is uh, one of the most important things to do. And some of this is about asking questions. And some of this is about you know, maybe reading something like my book or or visiting the National Eating Disorders Association website and learning and educating yourself about it. A lot of it is really just being open to hearing what your partner's experience is, even if it doesn't fit with how you would see the world. Right. Um, one of the things in the book that I'm I'm proud of is that I included an optical illusion. Um, and I stared at that for like three minutes. <laughs> I was like, that can't be. Right. <laughs> it is, but I swear it is. Um, leave it to me to talk about an optical illusion on a podcast. But um, so basically it's these two lines and they have arrows going out from them. The, the lines look completely like they're different lengths, but they're not. If you take a ruler and measure them, they're the same. And I use it to kind of say, it's like that. You can't say, you know, just don't be afraid of the food or who cares if you gain weight or you're beautiful the way you are. That's just, it doesn't, land. It's like, um, and you also can't say just eat, just eat this, just eat that. Right. That's like telling an insomniac to just go to sleep. Those things don't work. Yeah. So if you have like a deep, as deep an understanding as Mm. you can about how eating disorders, uh, mess with a person's brain really, um, then you can, you know, it's not you versus your partner, right? It's not, um, I want you to do this. No, I won't do that. Please eat this. No, I'm not eating that. It's you and your partner versus the eating disorder. If you're making teams, you're, you're almost. It sounds like saying that it, you're you're you didn't say it directly, Dana, but you're 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 by focusing on yourself first and taking maybe being more compassionate yourself. You're dealing with shame, right? Like if I approach you and say, Dana, you know that was a nasty thing you said to that person. I don't know what that. We'll have to talk later about these nasty things you say to people. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, say, Dana, you know, I don't know you, but you were out of line or you've got to straighten up and do this or, you know, right. I don't have a relationship with you and I'm giving you direction versus what I'm hearing you say is, you know, form a relationship, be curious about it 
and from, from a perspective of yourself. Nobody likes to be told what to do, right? Like nobody. And if you tell somebody what to do or you tell them they're messing up, it, it feels bad. And for these people, you know, like one person, when they feel bad, they might wash their hands. Another person, when they feel bad, they might, um, you know, I don't know, do some other behavior for these people. They're going to they're gonna get more entrenched in their eating disorder, mm-hmm. you know, if they feel badly. But now it's not your job to make them feel good about themselves, right? right. That's a boundaries thing. Right. The secondary sort of behavior that we see often is hiding the, 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 the disorder uh, or just, yeah. you know, and again, I think we should... Like to your point, like find another way to describe it, hiding the parts of them that are um, controlling their use of food or, or dieting. Like they, yeah. they people want to hide that. They feel ashamed of it. They don't want to be told what to do. Maybe they've been told what to do by their parents. They're already dealing with a, maybe some controlling parts of themselves. And then if you show up in, with your controlling parts. Yeah. Shame lives in secrecy, right? Um, so, and secrecy breeds shame. Um, so sometimes, not always, but sometimes secrecy is a, a facet of eating behaviors. Uh, you see this especially with binging um, and hiding hiding food wrappers and um, not wanting anybody to know. Um, and a lot of times our, our desire to have the person we love be okay, you know, which is very normal and very natural, our you know, you see the person that you love hurting and you, it seems like the person who's hurting them is them. So you get angry at them, right? It's perfectly natural. And also when you're taking good care of yourself, you can put that in check. And if you can reach, if you can be compassionate with yourself enough to reach the parts of you that struggle in one way or another, right? Because we all do, we're all human. If you can find the parts of you that feel vulnerable, the parts that wishes they could hide. I have a client who says, my cringeworthy self. If you can find that part of yourself, then you can meet your partner there. And uh, then the two of you can, you know, heal together and also sort of heal each other. But, you know, um, through your love as partners, not Mm -hmm. in a one up, one down type of way, because everybody struggles. I think that really is an approach that helps. Your message is do do your work first yourself as the partner. Yes. Find Absolutely. your own parts that may get out of balance in whatever way they do, because we all do. Yes, we all we all sometimes struggle to stay in kind of our best self. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and then you can recognize that um, you know some of the things that you think would be helpful, like when you're really taking care of yourself, you're paying attention to your boundaries too. So um, going five towns over to get the special granola bar that um, has, you know, maybe the least calories, that seems like it would be really helpful for you to do. You can start realizing if I do things like that, I might build resentment over time Mm -hmm. and that will hurt my relationship, myself and my partner. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of, if you take care of yourself, that informs the relationship and then the relationship comes from a healthy place. Right, right. I know I, I shared with you and, and my listeners that I've dealt with depression, which has been, it was harder than I thought it would be for me to admit as someone who's so familiar with it, having treated it and, and been so open and, and accepting of all the different forms that it takes. Um, but to me, what, what resonated about what you just said was that, you know, and I, and I think we know that there's a co-occurrence of depression and anxiety disorders that go with any sort of compulsions, behavioral compulsions, including food um, addictions or whatever we call them. Um, but it costs us energy, right? To do to mm-hmm. to um, pr- to 
to go to these great lengths to do things that maybe we don't really need to do. The mind makes up a story that we have to do it this certain way. But the body doesn't have the energy to do it. And eventually we're losing sleep, we're not sleeping well, and then all of a sudden we're not feeling well during the day. And so what are all these, like all these accessories? I like to think of it as what are the accessories we have, the things that we think we have to do or have to be for other people. The story you're telling yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I've also touched with depression and anxiety. And, you know, it's when you're telling yourself that story, it's so hard to recognize it as a story. When someone else Mm -hmm. says it, I mean, that's part Mm -hmm. of why therapy is so helpful. When someone else says it, or even if you find yourself saying it out loud to someone, you're like, oh, you listen a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. You can keep it in check a little more easily. And it sounds like that's what the power of, of a partner is. Uh, hopefully that's what our partners are there to help us do to maybe reflect a little back who, who, what they're seeing and who they're seeing so we can, you know, kind of be our best self. But a lot of people don't have partners. What, you know, what would you say about this work with, with someone who's not in a committed relationship? With people who are in committed relationships and people who aren't, but probably more of an emphasis for people who aren't is the relationship you have with yourself. Um, I really like to focus a lot in on um, how do you take care of, as you say, all the different parts of yourselves? How do you, of yourself, how do you take care of maybe um, a vulnerable part who's afraid to need anything, other people, food, anything, who wants to be a totally self-reliant or how do you take care of a part that's uh you know that's yearning for freedom right that really just wants to have less rules and less restriction and is playing that out in food how do you how do you how do you nurture and care for yourself um and also you know we our primary romantic relationships can be really important to our lives and really sustaining, but we also have lots of different relationships. So leaning on your, your friends, your family, your therapist, your, um, anyone really. And also, um, I will put a plug in here for mentorship. Um, I have occasionally, uh, seen models where there's, a a mentor or someone who's been in recovery for a while. I always recommend getting something like that if you can. Are there any other myths that you'd like to debunk? There's a bunch. So the number one thing I would say is the idea that it's about food. Um, there's, an, there's a saying in eating disorders that it's 100% about the food and it's 100% not about the food. The idea is that a person with an eating disorder uses food to meet basic psychological needs. They use eating, not eating, eating and then getting rid of it. Whatever it is they do with food, they use it to meet needs like feeling good enough, feeling like you have control over your world, um, dealing with perhaps trauma or negative things that have happened in life. And so um, if you look past um, the, like the trimming, right? Like the symptoms, the stuff people are doing, it's really the same fundamental set of human needs that we all have. So we can all kind of meet there and understand uh, from that perspective. Uh, so that is a big myth. Another myth is that it's about... Um, vanity and about how you look it, there's an aspect of of that to food stuff right because our culture is so into that but um it really turns into very quickly um for somebody with an eating disorder it turns into a way to meet basic needs basic emotional needs so it's not a surfacey thing mm-hmm. uh, another big myth is that it's a young white girl disorder um, 
we seriously underdiagnose eating disorders in men, in uh, people of color, um, and I think pr- probably in, in older people as well, although there's a little more um, awareness about that now, mm-hmm. there's still not a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So people think of, you know, when they think of eating disorders, they think of an after school special they watched in the 80s. And it's like right. a high school sophomore, a white right. high it's school It's just sophomore. young kids, it's young girls, certain yeah. types of young girls. What yeah. do you think about the biggest beautiful movement? I mean, there, there seems to be so much good that comes from the positive messaging around saying embrace your body, embrace who you are in, in whatever size you are. And even we've seen retailers try, try to do this sometimes in odd ways. But um, like I think the Dove example, I think they came up, is it Dove or it, I think it was, they, they actually made like curvy bottles. What I feel do you really think complicated about that. I have a lot of big feelings. And they're complicated. Um, so I... I think there are a lot of great things about it. I think it's wonderful that people are giving and receiving more messages that have to do with accepting yourself how you are. And also, it's still usually the primary goal of any corporation to sell you things. And it's still a major tool to make you feel bad about yourself and make you feel like you're somehow at deficit. And therefore, you need to use this. You can't afford to have deodorant marks on your on your skin or you know you need this um so i i do think that there there is a strong and scary possibility that body positivity um can be or maybe is being co-opted and used for the purposes um that are actually very contrary to the body positive movement um you know, uh, CVS committed to not using Photoshop models, but they're still choosing very carefully what images they, they, did I say body shop, Photoshop models? Photoshop. CVS yeah. has committed to using, to not <laughs> using Photoshopped images, but they're still choosing very carefully who they choose to put out there. And there's also a, a conversation about how overwhelmingly white the um, body positive, body positive movement have has gotten. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's, it's leaving behind some of the really important influences that it, you know, the people for whom it it was meant to serve, right? right. So right. you can be body positive as long as you're in this very narrow band of still how we expect people to be. Right. Um, right. But that being said, I, I do think, you know, I do think it's important to, to, um, I think it's a, it's a good movement overall. I'm not, you know, I'm not, sure. don't think we should go back to body bashing on right. relentlessly and things like that. It's a step in the right direction. Yeah. It's a, it's a complicated two step in almost the right direction. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, what does sex have to do with helping disordered eating? Oh, so much, right? Um, so for partners, sex is, uh, is, a way to connect, right? Ideally, it's a way to have your bodies come together. And if you hate your body, trying to come towards another person through the vehicle of your body gets really complex. A lot of times, um, people generally, and people with eating disorders especially, have a tendency to view uh, the body from the outside in, as opposed to experiencing it from the inside out. So um, in a, in a, in a sex environment, sex environment, in a sex encounter, this looks like so. They think they call it performative um, ism, and there's not spectatoring. That's right. 
Um, so people are more so, and this is porn has made this so much worse. I think people think about how they look doing the act and people never look. You're not supposed to look like put together. It's, you're it's supposed to be visual. like lost. I mean, you, it's usually not a vis- very visual. The visual cortex isn't like driving the whole thing. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. Um, you're not supposed to be, you know, it, ideally you're not concerned with how you look. You're lost in what you feel. Right. Um, so for people with eating disorders, that's, it's very, it's very difficult to arrive at that stage because there are all these negative messages about, even if your partner's the most supportive, loving person in the world, you think, how might they be seeing me right now? You know, there's always that, or very often that outside in um, feeling. And then there's also the fact that uh, certain types of eating disordered behavior have biological consequences for sex. So if somebody's not uh, eating enough or they're malnourished in other ways, uh, there's often not enough vaginal lubrication for sex to be really enjoyable without mm. something like lube. It's painful. Um, men have difficulty maintaining, getting and maintaining erections. It 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 um it really puts a whole damp, damper on the whole thing. Um, and for that reason, I talk with people about mindfulness and being centered in the body and in feelings when approaching sex and having it be okay that like it it might not go that great all the time. Kind of just finding a way to find pleasure in your body in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to be in your body and be okay being there and feel yeah. like that's your home. And letting it go. I mean, the body, you know, sex has such a, um, our sexual response is a reflex, right? And so yes. in order for a reflex to happen, happen, I often am teaching like that if, if we can, it's not so much about being in the mood, it's about being relaxed. Yeah. Because then if we're relaxed, our body can respond how, we might normally respond and have yeah. options. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk about boys and men? I mean, you mentioned that it's Please. that this is not, you know, that some of the stereotypes don't apply. How do men and boys um, fit into this in, in far, as far as being missed sometimes in diagnosis or treatment? Well, for one thing, I have so many male clients and they all think they're the only one. Um, so I'm going to like tip my hand here. (laughs) You're not, not, not a single one of them is, is open to being in a group though, because, um, that thing about eating disorders are for, um, you know, women is, uh, is just, is this terrible idea. I mean, the National Eating Disorders Association, uh, put out a stat once that said one in 10 eating disorders is a male. And since that time, there has been newer research that, um, says, you know, we're looking to actually close to about half, like maybe 40, 45%. Wow. That's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. But in the meantime, that one in 10 statistic has like taken root and mm-hmm. it's repeated everywhere. And men, men would like to think perhaps that it's really not our who, issue. Yeah. Who wouldn't <laughs> love to have something not apply to them? Right. right. Like, yeah. Um, and it can look different in men, which is, is, is complicated too. Right. So, um, some men have a lot of the same things that we see more often in women, like fear of fat. Um, you know, of course, like the emotional stuff is often very much the same, but um, men also have different body types in a lot of corners. So they, we see more of something that's um, that we could term bigorexia or muscle dysphoria of people who work out more than their body wants or needs um, sometimes may abuse steroids um, mm-hmm. and most importantly, who put their self-worth into how their body is looking. 
I can certainly relate to that when I was in college, you know, as a very thin person, like feeling like needing to um, make my body bigger somehow. Yeah. You know, and so absolutely. And and would I have ever thought of that at the time as an eating disorder or some sort of a body? There's no way I would have ever been open to that. But if you were to stop me from working out twice a day, you you would have probably gotten some of that information. I, yes, I work with a lot of, a lot of college students in particular. It comes up because, um, especially college athletes, there are a lot of male oriented college sports where you're supposed to be this or that weight. And that oh, a lot, that oh my can, gosh. Yeah. Like it's, wrestling and, um, you the, know, the, I don't the know. damage that I, I've felt long felt witnessing a lot of my friends as, you know, fantastic athletes and wrestlers through college, um, what they were doing to their bodies. I always, later on, I begin to wonder like, how how is this like ethically allowed in the health and coaching profession? Like yeah. what they do to make weight or gain weight is yeah, really it's against it's really scary. It's really advice. scary. I mean, I think that reflects our our the the uh, issue in our societal values. Right, their performance is more important than their personhood. Please take the time now to subscribe to the Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Yeah. Are there are there any stories that come to mind? Some of the things I think are really important to the heart and soul of uh, being a partner with somebody with an eating disorder. Uh, unfortunately, and I hate to be like a finger wagger, there are a bunch of things that it is kind of important to not say because you would never think that it would feed into the eating disorder, but it does like... Um, you don't need to diet because you're beautiful or you're, you look amazing. Um, those things refocus energy on how the body looks rather than how it is experienced by the person and felt. So it can really backfire, even though it seems like an obvious thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say I've worked with a number of partners in therapy um, who I'm just working with them. There's if, if you didn't come into the relationship with something going on in your world, and I almost guarantee that you did if you're a human person, then surely being in a relationship with someone with an eating disorder will bring something up. So I highly recommend individual therapy if possible for partners. Um, I recommend support in the terms of there are groups out there um, that are uh, for, I haven't found a lot that are specifically for partners, but there are groups that are for, um, you know, a general uh, population of people who love someone with an eating disorder. One is FEAST, uh, F-E-A-S-T. A lot of treatment centers will um, will have like a multifamily group or some way to have individual support for the partner. A lot of times people don't want partners to talk with others about their eating disorder because they feel uh, shame and secrecy about it. Um, and it's important to be respectful of those boundaries where you can, but it's vital that you have your own support. It can't be that you don't talk to anybody about it. So whether that means you need your own therapist and the bounds of confidentiality, because we can't tell anything that we hear about to people, um, or that means you need to just go inside your own friend group where um, the people may or may not even know your partner, that you've got to be able to go somewhere. Um, That's a non-negotiable, I would say. Right. They're all very holistic uh, approaches. And that's what I love about your book, Loving Someone with an Eating Disorder, Understanding, Supporting, and Connecting with Your Partner. It's a holistic approach. And and I wonder, uh, Dana, are there are there still places out there, I don't want to name names, but like, do people need to be careful as consumers of therapy, or even especially if they're at the point where they think they might need or their partner needs an inpatient treatment program? Yeah. 
Are there still places out there that are more confrontational? Ah, that's complicated. And sometimes a confrontation is appropriate. But when you're looking for treatment for an eating disorder, there's a lot of considerations. If you're looking at treatment facilities, um, you you really want to see if there's a holistic approach, if there are experiential therapies. You want to make sure if it's for an eating disorder that that is their specialty. Mm-hmm. Eating disorders are a bit of a rare breed and that you really need to, especially at the IOP or in, um, intensive outpatient. Yeah, intensive treatment that's not residential. You're not staying there. Um, you need to make sure there's somebody on board who has some idea about the physiology involved because eating disorders, um, the more severe they are, the more likely it is, but they really can affect your ability to take in the information. They can affect how your brain is functioning, particularly if somebody's not having enough carbs, they probably don't have enough serotonin. Elements of structure in the program, a behavioral piece is, is essential, but how, how controlling and how restrictive that you know, is delivered, I think, maybe may the issue that how the how it's framed. Honestly, it depends, right? So, um, so a structure or a boundary can be a loving, caring thing, right? Like I don't, um, I don't let my two-year-old play, you know, too close to the side of the road, right? Mm-hmm. And it takes work, it takes effort for me to say, no, you know, that's not going to be safe for you. Please come closer, please come closer, especially, you know, if she's having one of those days. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people with eating disorders, that kind of structure can be a huge relief because someone else is saying you is really important that you get some protein or eat this or eat that. A here's lot the of limit, people, here's the expectation. Yeah. And a lot of people really actually thrive with that because it removes the burden from them. They're not up to fighting against, which is, you know, the so-called eating disordered voice at that moment. Um, sometimes like, oh, I have to eat this because I'm forced to, it's actually a huge relief. Now people might not experience it exactly at that, at that way at the time. Um, but I, I think that can actually be really helpful. Now that's the, that's, uh, an approach for like people who are like really trained in how to do that while still respecting your dignity and your humanity is important. Um, you never want to be controlling like that as a, as a partner or a, mm-hmm. a parent or anybody Using else. anger to... Yeah. Oh yeah. It's got to come from a place of love too. Um, and also as somebody gets more and more on their feet, you know, the ability to make more and more of your own choices, is very important, you know? So starting out, let's say somebody starts out and it's really serious when, um, when the, the, it first comes to light that it's an eating disorder, they might need to go to something like inpatient is if you need a medical, um, component residential is if you need to stay somewhere for a while then after that you know you step down slowly to something like day treatment where you go every day like it's your job um to something like iop where you might go a few evenings and as this as this progressive you might have changes in your meal plan and the way that you eat right so when you're inpatient or residential they're probably going to tell you what to eat they probably are um, but then as, as you are finding your feet, you, ex, you have to be able to experiment with like, okay, if I make my own choice, can I make it based on what I need and what my body needs? Um, or is it going to be automatically always the lower calorie option or automatically always the highest calorie option or, you know, Give yourself room to try it out. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have room to grow. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's really complicated because control is the problem, um, but it can be kind of part of the solution in some ways. Part of um, it. It really it really relieving. depends on on the context and the and the care and love in which it's being 
delivered. I, I highly think so. Well, and um, I'll, point, I'll just point out one one helpful development, I think, because it, for years, I mean, the golden, the sort of the king of evidence-based has been cognitive behavioral, which is, which is you know, and of course there's mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral now. We're finding it integrated with more experiential models, but some of it's still very strictly kind of cognitive, which cannot, it's, I, I personally don't recommend it for <laughs> eating disorder, but you know, um, but there are other exper- uh, other evidence-based therapies that are out there now that insurance companies, treatment programs will use. IFS, internal family systems therapy, is yeah. one of them now. And um, I highly recommend people refer to that episode I did with Richard Schwartz, the founder, um, because IFS was found, you know, Dick Schwartz came up with the model because he was working with eating disordered clients, somebody with you know, a highly restrictive inner voice that was telling her yeah. to, you know, you know, restrict food, but also some self-injury. And, you know, as he tells it, and it's it really recommend people listen to the story, but as he tells it, you know, he would begin imposing control saying, look, you know, if next time I see you, I'm going to ask you to sign the safety agreement that you don't mm. harm yourself again, if, you're, if, if I'm going to show up here and help you. And of course, lo and behold, the next time, the next session, there's a big gash, not just on the person's arms, but on the face. And so that's what motivated him to start listening to these different parts and actually respecting them instead of pushing, constantly pushing treatment onto them. I like to think of it as, um, you know, if you're finger wagging, you're you're not going to get anywhere. Right. Um, What you're doing is trying to form an alliance and a bond with the wise and healthy part of themselves that the person already has. We all, I believe, innately have some part of us that's not been touched by trauma that that we sort of hold off and protect. And if we can find that part that um, then we unlock, uh, we unlock all of the really healthy strivings that people have. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's complicated with control because sometimes people... um, you know, if you over control yourself, if you over control your partner, um, uh, then, you know, actually, sometimes a symptom can be a healthy part of you that just doesn't know any other way to come out. You know, what's a lot, a lot of times I think about like, what's the need, the important need that this eating disorder is meeting? And what's a healthier way to meet it, right? So somebody with bulimia might have a need for freedom, right? I restrict, I don't eat, I don't eat, I don't eat. And then every once in a while, I eat everything I want and it's the best day of my life. But then I feel a lot of guilt. So I do something to get rid of the calories. Well, you know, like, do you feel free in your relationships? Do you feel free uh, to choose your career based on what you love doing as opposed to what someone else thinks you should do, you know, and you get into mm-hmm. all of these things. I'm, I'm off on a, no, another that's good. thing, but no, you get I mean, into. I mean, it really I, is. Our, I mean, it's like, I think it's our job to be what I call and what Dick Schwartz calls the hope merchant. It's like saying, because usually people will say, they'll come back and say, well, yeah, but that's just not possible. I would like to have more freedom. Um, but you just don't understand. Like I'm, you don't know who I'm married to, or you don't know how I got to this place. There's no way I'm going to get out of that. But it's also true. You don't understand, right? So that's that's complicated. And so at the one hand, I want to be there to listen and empathize. On the other hand, I want to say, look, but if you're, if you want to, if you want some help with this, would you trust me? Cause I think you can totally get there, right? There is another option out there. And so would you be willing to trust me? Well, okay. Well, yes, but I don't know how to do it. And well, that, that's why you're here. So can those parts of you that don't know how to do this, can we talk yeah. to them? 
And, you know, we're, we're really privileged to be in the position of being able to hold the hope because we've seen so many people really change their lives. No, there's so many wonderful things. I think I, I hope people get the message that they should go out and get your book. It's called Loving Someone with an Eating Disorder, Understanding, Supporting, and Connecting to Your Partner. Um, wish you the best with, with that book and um, in, in your future in, in writing and teaching. Thank you so much, Dana Heron. Thank you very much, Keith. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.